Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets, songwriters, and artists, including Olivia Gatwood, Safia El Hilo, Dana Joya, and many more. We also feature periodic submitted poetry episodes. Visit viewlesswings.com to submit your original poetry. I'm your host, James Moorhead, Poet Laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas, Portraits of Red and Gray, and The Plague Doctor. Hit subscribe and follow me on Instagram or threads at Viewless Wings. Roger Craig, Professor Emeritus of English at Kent State University, Ohio, has written four collections of poetry along with two chapbooks. His poetry has appeared in several national poetry journals such as The Formalist, Fulcrum, The Literary Review, The Atlanta Review, The London Grip, and The London Magazine. English by birth and educated at the universities of Reading and Southampton, he has worked as a journalist, TV critic, and chess columnist. Before coming to the USA in 1991, he worked in Turkish universities and was awarded a Beinecke Fellowship to Yale in 1990. He has widely traveled, having visited North Yemen, Egypt, South Africa, Tibet, Nepal, Japan, Bulgaria, where he taught during spring 2007 on a Fulbright scholarship, the United Arab Emirates, Austria, Croatia, and Romania, where from 2013 to 14, he was a Fulbright scholar at the University of Oradea. He is glad every day that he is living in the USA. He watches the birds throughout the year with joy. Dr. Craig, welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast. Thank you, James. A pleasure. I'm excited to talk about your book. But before we talk about your latest book, In Other Days, what poets first inspired you to write poetry? And what poets are you reading today that excite you about the future of poetry? I don't think that any poets inspired me to write poetry, James. From what I remember when I was in what you would call high school in America, which we would call primary school and secondary school in, in England and, and Scotland, we had to write poetry occasionally. And then the whole subject of English, to my enormous disappointment, it was never explained, turned to writing about other people's books. And I never really thought about writing poetry again. And indeed, I didn't do any of it um, ever again. I, I would read for pleasure in, su in such times, uh, I, I read the read the standard fare, and of course I I read poetry when I was studying English, if you could call it studying, um, at, at Reading University. Um, I I think I liked Philip Larkin, the British poet, uh, uh, early early on, but he he never made me want to write poetry. Various phrases stuck in my in in my mind. But actually, James, I think I like certain poems rather than I do particular poets in the way that some people like certain songs by certain artists rather than the whole rather than the whole thing. And as for your second question, I hardly read any poetry, would you believe? Interesting, I, interesting. I, 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 do, I don't, and of course you're probably going to ask me why I don't, and I can't answer that very well. I tend to read novels and and, and books on art and listen to music, but, but particularly novels, I'll find a phrase in, in something that I'm, I'm reading and, and write it down, and then things will, will perhaps move. 
I think I first started the idea, the idea of writing poetry myself was reading Graham Greene and reading a passage mm. or two in Brighton Rock, say, and thinking, oh, this sounds like poetry. Yeah, and it's I this start, beautiful, you know beautiful what I language. Mean by that? Yes, yes, yeah. Especially his lists of things, James, where where he where he starts to describe a scene in Brighton, say, and there's this in the old chain and there's this in the cosmopolitan and then it moves away to the, uh, the the slums by the station. And I thought, well, if you slice this into lines, it's something something like uh, like a poem, perhaps. And then I started doing doing that in my own style, rather like, um, is this too long an answer? No, rather don't, don't than, worry. Podcasts have well, no defined beginning, middle, end length. It's the, it, that's the beauty of it. Yes, there's no clear-cut beginning and so far no dead end, as some singer <laughs> said. I don't remember who that was. But in the way that the children's game Scrabble has got all the words put down in it, and then after, you, after as a child, you're too good to play that kind of Scrabble, you, you make up your own words. Mm -hmm. and I, think, I think that was the way it was with me. Uh, beautiful. Yeah. And I, I uh, Michael and I read, I enjoy Stephen King for the stories. The writing is okay. But then I enjoy Michael Andace because he's such a wonderful poet because his books are so poetic. And there's a, there's a something mm -hmm. that someone who, uh, someone who writes really good poetry when they decide to write a novel, which I can't even imagine trying to undertake and it's an enterprise. I can't even imagine I, it. <laughs> me neither, James. But you do see something in their writing that draws from their skill of poetry. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. A phrase. It's generally a, a phrase. Mm -hmm. Just something which for some reason or another is evocative and, and, then, and then it somehow takes with you and it, it sticks with you. And sometimes you can make something of it and something else will come into mind from it. Or sometimes it just remains for future use or no use. Absolutely. Well, and your collection in other days draws in part from your experiences in multiple countries. How has immersion in different cultures influenced the language you use in crafting poems? That's very difficult to explain. And I hadn't, believe it or not, I hadn't really, really thought about it. I lived in Turkey and something about Turkish somehow echoed in, in, in my ear. And when you live in a different kind of country, in a different country like that, I've lived in Turkey uh, and uh, Romania, where I've worked, and Bulgaria, where, where I worked for a lesser amount of time. Something in a phrase or a sound or, or, or a word will, link, will linger with you. I'll give you an instance, although I hadn't prepared this. When I was in Amsterdam last year, Someone said there's a phrase in Dutch, and of course I'll pronounce it wrong, called natte fingerwerk. And that means moist finger work, whereby you lick your finger and hold it in the air so that it catches the wind. In other words, you don't really know which what what to do, so you hazard it. And and something like that, the phrase of it, that's not the best instance, James, but it, it it's something like that. Yeah, no, I think that's a great example. Moist finger work is such a wonderfully strange phrase that, yeah, that there, if you if you literally translate things from other languages, you can end up with poetic phrases that you wouldn't probably ever think of in English. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that's that's exactly it. Yeah. I'm glad it's enriched your day. It's enriched my day <laughs> to hear it. All my Dutch friends were that's a finger working with their fingers up in the air. You'd have loved it. <laughs> Wonderful. 
Well, in, in the poem Home, 1956 to 1965, that starts the collection, it starts with such a delicate line, the rainy fields of sheep and cows in Leicestershire, and continues with a short two-part poem, despite covering a nine-year span. Um, how did you revise this poem into something so slight and effective, and why did you choose to lead the collection with this poem, which is a question I ask frequently on this podcast? For the last part first, because the volume as a whole is chronological, although some higgledy-piggledy-hugger-mugger bits in the middle where things didn't go go chronologically. I did the thing, I did it from memory, mm. or all, all of that particular piece. I can't speak to the effectiveness of anything I write. Once you finish something, it's for others to decide, and it's the, it, it's the property of others. But I just remember those things, those very, very early days in in Leicester. And I suppose, James, it would be the same for anyone living in a place where basically all your world was that place mm. and, the streets, and the streets around which, uh, in which and uh, around which you lived or, or went on small excursions, that, that kind of thing. And, of course, I hope that some sort of tenderness for my parents would come through in that. Yeah, absolutely. It was just it was it was just an example of poetry can with so few words convey a, an emotion. It was just a beautiful, comforting way to start the collection. I really really enjoyed that. As a, I, re, I really wanted to keep reading, which is I think the role of that first poem is you want to keep reading. Yeah, thank you. It was nice to read, and I can't I can very seldom remember writing any of the pieces or the effort that, which goes into them, unless I concentratedly try. I write in, write in numbered, dra numbered drafts. But as for that one, I have the impression that it came fairly easily, James, but I, I really don't remember. Yeah. Well, in, in Foxton Locks, uh, you employ prose poetry, closing with, he wondered what would happen to the tadpole in its life and in due course no longer wondered what made the clouds English clouds, or why the Grand Union Canal was Union, or why it was grand. How do you approach decisions of form, in this case it's prose poetry, but in general, like when you're deciding, does the form come first and then you fill it in? And when I spoke to A.E. Stallings, she surprised me in saying that the form is a decision that's made up front, and then she the the poem in 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 goes into that form. I'm the opposite. I just write images and phrases and don't worry at all about the form and then figure that out later. I'm absolutely with you there, on 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 that one. I, I think you start off with an idea and the form comes from the way the thought and the and and the language where they where they take you. I can't imagine thinking, uh, thinking I'm going to write about this subject in this form unless there's something particular yeah. about the about the subject, James, that somehow demands a, a certain type of form. I can't think of, of anything like that. And as for that particular poem, if it's one, I never write in, virtually never write in, in prose, but somehow that seemed to ask for it, the way that that, the way that that one came out. I've no, I think I've hardly written anything else that might be termed by others as a prose poem. Yeah, and I hadn't until my uh, my book from last year ever written prose poetry, and then there was just a, there was a poem that I don't think I could have written any other way, but it was then I was like, oh, right. well, I guess I'm writing my first prose poem. Here it is. You know, it just it, need, it needed to be that. But I don't think I could have written it had I decided at the beginning that it was a prose poem. I don't. I think it would have messed it up. I just needed to sort of write. 
I, I'm sure you you somehow know that the form is 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 the true form. You don't really think about it in itself as 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 a form. It takes the shape that it takes. And I do. I once I think that there's a danger if you. And I can only speak for for my my own efforts. Is that when you start something and then something like a form accumulates Mm -hmm. there's a danger in pressing the next lines into that form at at their own cost yeah i mean at the cost of the sense or or genuineness i talked to a uh, i interviewed a poet who did three wonderful shakespeare inspired sestinas and they're just you wouldn't know they're sestinas unless you reread them a couple times and then it's it's so well done so I'm determined to write one someday as an, as, a, as I'm just determined as a challenge, but uh, I have not yet found the thing that would fit that form, which is so challenging. Right. <laughs> well, now you now you say that, it makes me think that I've read something or, or other, meaning any number of things, and only later do I realize that there is a scheme and that there is a rhyme scheme, but so natural is it, whatever it is, that you, you don't realize that. And I think that's... That's good, isn't that what people call art concealing itself rather than demonstrating itself? Absolutely. Well, in the long poem to A.A. A. Milne, mm. I, I just a wonderful poem, a wonderful tapestry of your experiences with A.A. A. Milne through his writing, someone who, as you wrote, was born the year you died. How did you approach interleaving your personal experience with A.A. A. Milne's work and its effect on you? And then the references to A. Milne's story that in history, which I'm assuming took some research, or maybe you were already very familiar with the backstory. How did you interleave those two things so effectively? Well, that's kind of you to say. I, when I was a small boy, I read the. I, I'm not talking about Winnie the Pooh or any of the Pooh books. I'm talking about uh, when we were very young, mm-hmm. and now and now we are six. If I've got got that right and I think I had a copy of when we were very young when I was a very small boy and read it and the not only the poems there but the pictures there the drawings by E.H. Shepherd must have somehow impressed themselves on me I never did any much look much by way of looking into Milne mm. in, in into his life at all I noticed he died in, in 1956 which as you as you say was the year that I was was born and the rest and and the rest just just came and then there's a sec there's a bit in there isn't there about london and uh, mm-hmm. and the anti aircraft guns and and somehow um, i must have been thinking about milne's milne's later years which yeah. are of course the years of the war to which my parents and my grandparents lived but to which i being young did not live yeah well, I've also, in, in contrast, asked poets recently about very short poems, something that I'm working on as a skill. It's not my long suit. In Control, you write, and I'll read the entire poems because it's so short. Please do. The earthenware runnel of milk in Vermeer. Control. Those invisible lakes in the pitcher and the bowl becoming one lake, even, tideless, cool. Again, this is more about the process of revision and editing when, to come up with such a short poem that describes so compactly, at least in my assessment, Vermeer's painting, The Milkmaid. So, and it's an example of just so few words, just captures the essence of that painting, if I'm getting the reference right. so You are. Yeah. You're getting the reference. Yeah, so how do you, how do you approach that editing where, you know, every word is 
in, a, in any poem, every phrase, every word is important, but it's particularly important when the poem is so short. I have the faintest idea. I wish I could, <laughs> I wish I could give you a better answer. Yeah, where's the recipe so we could just read the recipe and create the poem? Yeah. <laughs> if, I, if I had one, I'd be writing far better stuff. Or, or maybe, did this, maybe ask this a different way. Did this yes, start as a short poem or did it become a short poem because that's what it needed to be? It was never any longer. Mm. As with the previous answers, I can't remember much about writing them, but I do remember the, the painting, and I think I've seen it in Holland. I really ought to remember. But the interesting thing, I think, in the painting, apart from the milkmaid's ab absorption, is is the runnel of milk that that goes that very thin runnel that uh, move when it when it pour when it pours pours down. The, the, that that poem was never any longer than mm. as appears in print. That's interesting because I'm I, trying to remember which interview I did, but there was one uh, poet I asked a similar question, and it turned out that the poem was multiple pages, and yeah. then it got well, collapsed I, down. You know, it just happened to just become tiny in the end. Well, I I did as a kind of loop line to this in the previous book. I wrote something called Anthologist, and has it ever struck you, James, that when you read an anthology of literature, those great doorsteps of, of, of books, you know, that are used to keep doors open. Yes. Um, these are selections, and it, it struck me that in being selections, of course, there, there was an editor selected, but there also was an editor left out. And why did, why, why were such things, why were such things left out? And I, I remember thinking, with regards to the Oxford book of, uh, of contemporary, of 20th century verse, Philip Larkin edited, there was a marvellous poem of William Plumer's that he didn't include. And I thought, why the heavens didn't he? And now, now we'll never know. And if he were alive, he might be lying to us. So we would never know. <laughs> but uh, to get, get back to what you were asking, that was a very, that was quite a long piece and rarely for me, I, I sent it to my father, who was a, a professor of English at, at Durham, and um, he said, keep, keep the first eight lines and throw the rest away. <laughs> there you go. <clears throat> and I did. I gave that advice to a poet who had asked for an opinion, and I said, uh, the, the first part of this is so wonderful, it loses, you, you, the wonderfulness evaporates with all the rest. Yeah, so just keep the first bit Isn't and it? throw it out. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, there's, there's something called literary criticism, which means writing about literature. But I think it also might ought to mean uh, being critical of, of, of literature. I mean, let me just, just go out on a limb. The poem by D.H. Lawrence called Snake, you know, it's about yeah. when he throws, when, when it, he was there before me. I mean, don't you think you need a bit of Prussian blue pencil, as journalists say? I think it would be much better if it were cut by a third. I think that there's probably many artists that are esteemed now where, uh, or even artists that became esteemed during their lifetime, and then yes. they reached a point where people were afraid to, to be critical because they yes. were so esteemed, and then their work gets bloated in later years. I can. It think does. I mean, Auden perhaps, and Auden and Yeats, I think, both revised their earlier poems. The the former for the better, and the latter, arguably, for the worse. <laughs> yeah, but that's another subject. Yeah. Well, Widow of Cain in Age is rich with biblical references, 
And uh, how do you approach this tricky balance of infusing references and research into a poem while not entirely requiring the reader to fully grasp all the references? And when I was talking to Dana Joya recently, you know, his goal was you can read the poem and everyone will get something out of it. And if you read it again, you'll start to see those deeper connections, uh, but you don't have to necessarily know all of them to fully appreciate the poem. And I thought this was a good example of that kind of two layers. I think he's absolutely right about that, and maybe it's the it, it it's the test of of great literature or or good literature, slippery though, though those terms are. That each time you you do read it, James, and another resonance comes through. Sometimes cutting across earlier resonances, and sometimes sometimes amplifying them. It's it, it's a that that particular piece. Peace of mind is very unusual in subject matter, and I haven't the faintest idea how it's occurred to me. Or, or maybe it's because, but I'm, I'm thinking as I'm speaking here, it's because sometimes characters in works are, are mentioned just so slightly mm -hmm. that you start wondering uh, uh, about, about them. There's someone in Thomas Hardy's Tess of the D'Urbervilles who dances with Angel Clare, and she and it's it's not Tess Durbeyfield, and Hardy calls her the Eclipsing Girl, and that's it in the novel for the Eclipsing Girl. She clears <laughs> off to lead whatever life Eclipsing Girls live. So you know, there's a kind of wonder. That after all the other all the other things, I I I really can't remember what's where they came from. Just imagine, just just imagining. I remember I, as a child, I had a book about animals and birds in the Bible, and there were things like where appeared the rock hyrax, which I, which is a kind of mouse or gopher-like creature in the Holy Land, and the lammergeier, which is or ossifrage, the bone-breaking vulture, and for some reason or another they came in, but I can't. I, I can't, the, the, the piece, like so many, just wrote itself. You know, your your example of uh, of a character to the side becoming the, the centerpiece, I think a wonderful example of that is uh, the play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, where it just takes these two comical side characters and creates the whole thing. I just thought that was a wonderful way to re-explore Hamlet in that case through two bit characters. And there's Isn't probably that marvelous. It's wonderful. It, it, it means that that's one of my future projects. I don't know what it is to take some thing that's off to the side and reimagine it all for their perspective. It's just such an interesting way to. Isn't that good? I somehow remember there's there's a book in 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 published in England about the private life of the gerund, the part of speech, and the gerund must do something or other. I think there are pictures in there. Someone's imagination must have liked the word gerund and imagined it doing something. But Definitely. that's different from people, of course, and yeah. characters in in literature, books. <laughs> well, the the six part poem that closes the collection. In memory of Wendy Ann Craig, February 7th, 1934 to May 15th, 2015, is a wonderful tribute to your mother. I've written two poems in memoriam in recent years, and it's an extraordinary challenge and an honor and a privilege. Um, the approach you took in this poem is really distinct from other in memoriam poems I've read. Six parts, each related, but with, a, with different lengths and styles. Um, how did you approach capturing the essence of a life that spanned 81 years and all the very personal emotional connections 
to, to you and maybe every poet at some point will be writing an in memoriam poem. Um, I've been asked about that. Uh, what, what advice do you have? Of course, it's very personal and it'll be different for each each person. But what did you learn in the process of crafting a poem, especially one that had was more intricate than I would say most in memoriam poems are? That one is is simply really what it is. Uh, I didn't. I found myself writing pieces, and I had no intention of really of gathering them all together. In fact, I found them in my in 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 my notes. It's more, James, a a, a, a collection of pieces about the circumstances of of my late mother's life. In other words. The, the funeral, one's feelings such as they are around the funeral, the taxi driver, you know, the uh, the funeral director, and, and and later on, if it does manage, if it does convey something about uh, the actual life my mother lived, I'm I'm very pleased. But it was re- it really I thought centered on uh, of, on the local circumstances. Yeah, no, I thought that I, I thought the structure of it too was interesting. Typically, your typical in memoriam poem is a single poem, not broken into parts. I just thought it was a lovely change to how it was you approached the capturing, capturing. Thank life. you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how did you approach structuring this book and in, in creating a narrative arc from a collection of poems written individually over a period of years? Um, most poet- books of poetry. This one, you said there's a chronology, and I picked that up. Um, but I assume that the poems were written. You know, the poems are written in, in somewhat in isolation, and then you decide you've got critical mass to, to create a book, and then you have to figure out how, and maybe the chronology simplified that task somewhat, but what was your thought process and how you ordered the book? The chronology helps, but not that much. Mm-hmm. More or less, it's a beginning it, it's a beginning and, a, and, and an end. I do believe that there are books written about how to order books. I can't imagine, <laughs> so, I can't imagine such a thing. I think I got to the stage where I thought I'd got enough decent enough pieces to make a, a book-length book. And Philip Larkin somewhere says that if the reader isn't in, uh, liking the, the, this particular poem much, he'll dislike the, the, the next one mm. a little less. Uh, but the, the way I did it, I just I had everything printed out and then spread them over my my sitting room floor and stared at them and moved them around a bit. I didn't try in the slightest to make one piece speak to the next. Uh. That's beyond that's beyond my abilities and it would also be beyond anything I would want to do, James, except that maybe if there were two of a very similar subject, I probably wouldn't put them together unless there were a, a cogent reason uh, to, to do that, it's it's more difficult than one one might might think. All all of all of that. It, 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 in a way, it was no joy. Oh, it's very difficult. And yes, I think. Don't you think? Pretty much every uh, uh, every of the books I've done, and then every poet I've spoken to, in one form or another, um, prints everything out. Whether they put it on a wall or more likely their family room floor, and then tell the family, uh, just don't mess with this, and then just <laughs> and it's just because it, for all the the fanciness of our digital tools, they're not a replacement for physically seeing it 
and being able no. to move things around. And it is very, it's, it's, it's nerve wracking almost <laughs> because once the book is cut, it's much harder to change it. And it's just these, it's a whole series of hard decisions. So yes, it's it hard. Is. It, it, it is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, very much so. Well, I've got one more question before I hand the mic over to you to read uh, from in other days. And so I recently interviewed Dana Joya. Uh, he's wonderfully opinionated on the state of poetry in the United States and not uh, and not shy about his opinions. What is your assessment of poetry in the United States? Uh, let's just limit it to the United States based on your experience working with students at the Kent State University. Well, I'm retired now and I don't think that that was uh, that was a particular help. Um, you know, the working with students. I was never really teaching poetry much i've got no qualifications at all in 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 the teaching of poetry the effect on me which uh, is a branch from your question of reading poetry written in america was that i found it after living and working in england for such a long time extraordinarily liberating to read life stories by robert lowell and particularly mm. frank o'hara frank o'hara is like nothing we ever looked at in 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 high school or, or in university, for that matter, where in university didn't look at one poem that didn't come from the British Isle. Uh, <laughs> shocked, shocked though you, though you might might be about it. I don't. I really don't follow much of of, of the, the the current scene uh, at all. I I think one of the. I don't know what Dana Joy said, but um, what bothers me is the concentration on theme alone. Mm-hmm. I think that what matters in 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 poetry and so many people have said the same is is the way that the theme is given voice to and expressed in the particular words and with the particular musics coming from those words um, i mean a, a very a, a good poem about failure is a success isn't it whereas a, um, a bad poem about success is a bad poem i think i've got the corollary wrong yeah, a, a, a bit there but you see I got it, you yeah. see what i mean Theme itself doesn't uh, dis- distinguish uh, li- literature. Yeah, from a wonderful his- from theme history, does it. A wonderful theme can be a bad poem. Uh, that won't Quite. save you. Yeah. Oh, would you like that? Well, <laughs> my father used to say of of drama, uh, an ounce of drama is worth a pound of theme. <laughs> wonderful. Well, now I'm going to turn the mic over to you to read selections from In Other Days. Lewis. 1966. The taut green tennis ball spinning from my fingertip, spanking the hot patio, half volleying up against the brickwork and soaring in the sky all over England to clasp itself in my palm again and again and again. This next piece I've selected is about the Russian gymnast, a waif of a girl called Olga Korbut, who was famous in the 1972 Olympics. And I started wondering about Olga Korbut, and I wondered where where she was and what her life was. And of course, I could perfectly easily look up these details, but I preferred not to know and just to and just to wonder. To Olga Corbett, 
Like a slowly rotating star, you began your progress, dignified the beam, then ridiculed its four-inch breadth as if you were an urchin skipping away on flagstones in a grimy street and not fey Soviet prancing into the world's hot retina that's German city's summer in the Brezhnev time. But soon, as they were bound to do, the others came. And you? There must be books, a biography or two, footage, interviews. Instead, you have known contentments in your life, thought folding into thought along, great beach-lined afternoons of unremembering, and you no longer caring how you are remembered now or if. And this, the final piece, was written in in my my mother's last years and and concerns um, a, a, a change of mood and then then back again. Thirty three Charleston House, a state of mind. Every afternoon I go over. She's in bed. I sit in the chair. There's nothing to be said. There's nothing to be said. There's nothing to be said. There's nothing to be said, but even so, Christ, it's early morning, and it's now, and I'm in ecstasies imagining those master blenders, Dower and Efforts, 1753, roasting and grinding my coffee for me alone in Amsterdam, my city always in the wings, those orange clouds trailing across the blue, over all of Nottingham, it's perfect art that's moving in the sky and crinkling in the Victorian glass of my mother's bookcase. Wonderful. I'm never going to read your poetry again without hearing your voice, which is a very good thing. Those were wonderful performances. I love that. So um, thank you to uh, Olga Corbett. I'm really glad you chose to read that poem. You end with the line and you no longer and and you no longer caring how you are remembered now or if. What a wonderful way to end the poem and ending poems is very it's probably one of the hardest things in poetry is, is endings are extremely difficult and we agonize Isn't over it? them. So maybe at, how do you approach that agonizing um, ending of a poem? And what are the feedback loops that help you validate that, you know, you're not, it's not too much. It's usually, it's unusual that a poem ends with too little. It's usual that a poem ends with too much <laughs> and it has to yes. be cut back. Um, so how do you work through those tricky editorial decisions? One has several drafts, James, and one looks at those drafts 
And the expectation, which is quite unreasonable, is that one's drafts get better and better <laughs> as as they go on, but they don't. But yeah. they don't. But they don't always, and that can that can help with the with the ending of, of a piece, uh, because something can be found earlier that would give a better shape with regard to the ending, but without giving too much strain to the thought of an ending. Your question is a very interesting one because. It's best that there's a piece should breathe and there'll be a lot of air and thought, not only within the poem, uh, but, but after it. I found it helpful to ask myself once I think something is finished, and I often unreliably think something is finished, to ask, can it end here? Mm-hmm. Can it end here? Uh, with James, the final, as you think it. Uh, version and common sense that's not the way to put it feel tells you uh, where 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 that right point is i would just add that it's a very liberating feeling indeed when you can finish earlier than your draft was yes because don't you think Uh, i think that one of the things that i do is that uh if i'm unsure about if I'm going on too much, I cut off a few lines, wait a day, and see if I can even remember what was there. And if I oh, can't, that's very if, good. if I can't remember what I cut, which is more often the case, then clearly it wasn't so earth shattering. If I if I could if I remember it, which happens occasionally, then I go, hmm, okay, I may have to be a little more careful because it's maybe it should be there and I'm noticing its absence. So yeah, that's one of the techniques I use is to cut it, wait a couple days, see if I can remember what I cut. Those are wonderful comments in my mind. That, 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 that's just marvelous, especially the leaving it. The, I think the, the leaving of something is, is very good and then you can look at it with fre- a, a fresh eye. I have a lot, a lot of the pieces that made their way into the into this book were drafts and very bad drafts at that. But sometimes there would be a line or two in it that I thought passed muster, or the idea was, and and I would grade them, you, uh-huh. you know, as I'd grade a student essay, but with 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 a sort of acerbic comments like C minus something here, but <laughs> and 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 so on. I don't know how that fits into the idea of an ending, but sometimes they were so long, and I'd think it. It, it would be better, even at that early stage of looking at something old, if it were to end there. Yeah, I think that's an interesting mindset to be in. If this was handed to me by someone to critique, how would I critique it? And I think if you leave a couple days, then you're more likely to critique it with eyes that are fresh. And But that's a, that's a, I like that. Just like reading things out loud, you will hear things that you won't see when you're reading them off the page. Your inner voice is not the same as your externalized voice. No, it's not. There's something I'd like to add about that, just not so much about me, but it might be a help to others, is that what I do is when I, I, I'm writing, I record myself on a small pocket recorder, and it, even with my limited technological skills, I press it so that it can keep on repeating itself. So if you can stand to listen to the sound of your own voice, which I'm not sure I can do right now, uh, you, you, it starts mm. to get into into you, and 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 then sometimes, as, as as it were, by osmosis, the next line forms itself. And in the way that when you, if you've got a song running through your mind, it keeps on running through your mind, even when you don't think it's doing the running. 
You know, I was just thinking of this with the way animate. I'm fascinated by animation. If it's hand-drawn animation, they have all their frames and they're flipping through them as they refer to the next frame. And that idea of mm -hmm. recording yourself and listening to it, it, almost like you're hearing a performance and, well, how should that continue? I love that idea. That's a great idea. And some, somehow it's very personal and very involved. And yet you're hearing something that's distant at right. the same time, if that makes any sense. No, it, it takes the poem out of you and it's being presented back to you. That's a really cool idea. I like that. As Yes, and listening to our own voices is universally painful for some reason but yeah lovely. i hope you'll i hope you like listening to yours now <laughs> well, i'm getting definitely used to that from this podcast i've definitely have heard my voice more than i've ever heard it before this is my first podcast ever and a very good one awesome. enjoyable one well finally what are you working on now i'm gathering pieces uh for for another collection i've made a, a list of things but that's as far as it got as it as it's got, I'll be be attending to this without hurry over the course of the year. I'm trying to write a piece about coffee, not just because I like coffee, James, but I've always thought that the smell of coffee is nicer than coffee itself. Oh, definitely. And I'm, I'm writing about the business of grinding it up and so on and uh, so forth. You can tell how far this has advanced, can't you? <laughs> That's a wonderful starting point. Well, thank you so much for sharing your poetry and your wonderful reading voice on the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast today. It's been a pleasure, and thank you very much indeed. The Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Instagram, threads, and YouTube at Viewless Wings. Hit subscribe to be notified of every episode of the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast and spread the word with your poetry community.